Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the third instalment of December 2023's edition of Rerun the Rivalry. The new December tradition in which myself, you let me tell you something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other let me tell you something co-host, Simon Cross, go through every high profile match in a storied rivalry in the annals of pro wrestling. We've gone to what was a real home ground important part of my wrestling development with this series of Ring of Honor matches between Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness, and we're even closer to my home on a geographical level than we ever have been before. Simon, where are we, when are we, and what are the stipulations for this match? We are at the Liverpool Olympia in Liverpool, and a match taking place on the 12th of August 2006. Now, the match itself is fought under pure rules. However, unlike the first match in the series, the world title is being held to the same set of rules as the pure title, which means it can change hands on a count-out or a disqualification. And as announced... At the start of this, in the event of a double countout, a double disqualification, or a double pin, or any drawing-based method, the match will be restarted. Quite simply, there must be a winner. And why are the stakes so high? Because it's for both the Pure title and the Ring of Honor World title. Of all the matches that Ring of Honor have had, and Ring of Honor was built around the notion of booking great matches... This match is very often cited by a lot of people as the best match that Ring of Honor have ever held. That it's up there with your Punk, Samoa Joes, Danielson Kenta, a glory by honor, which happens a month after this one. Yeah. That this is like the gold standard. And I also, I think it's also out of all the matches that Ring of Honor have held, if you were to say what is Ring of Honor's equivalent to the Bret Hart, Stone Cold Steve Austin, WrestleMania 13 submission match, it would be this match. Okay. Not just because it's a great match with blood, but also that it was maybe the best booked match, some would argue of someone becoming a bigger star through loss than maybe they ever could have through a single victory. That this is singularly, maybe, Nigel McGuinness's crowning achievement in his career. And maybe even the best match that Danielson's had. I'm sure there are some people that would argue that. Because there'll be some people who probably say this is their favourite match of all time. Especially people, I suppose, around my age and my generation, who grew up, especially... Especially, especially, if they might have been in the crowd for this match. Although the crowd in this match really blows hot and cold insofar as appropriate behaviour, as UK fans can do at times. Well, yeah. But boy, do they get them heated up in this match. Well, straight off the bat, in the pre-match introductions, where Danielson insists on being introduced as bigger than the Beatles, which was beautiful to do, obviously to a Liverpool crowd. And immediately made me think of the B-Sharps in The Simpsons, but we, we digress. And uh, Nigel, in response, when he's introduced as one of the most British things you can possibly do to someone you don't like, and flicks the old Vs at him. (laughs) So I've just looked it up, and in the history of Ring of Honor matches on Cage Match, this is the fourth highest rated match. The only ones above it being, number one, Kenta Kabashi against Samoa Joe, which we cover for the Five Star Project. Yep. Number two... Cash Wheeler and Dax Harwood against the Briscoe Brothers. Yep. The Dog Collar Chain match. The third one of their matches that we covered in the Five Star Project. And number three is another Brian Danielson-Nigel McGuinness match, which we haven't covered yet. 
But obviously what makes this match special and stand out is because obviously it was a title unification match. This was the last match that the pure championship would be fought for until sometime in 2020 or so, I think. The crowd are um, rather amped for this match at the start. Was the Liverpool Olympia the one that you went to for the Shingo Takagi Naruki Doi? Yes, it was. So yes, the the Ring of Honor Pure Championship was re-established uh, in October 2020. So this was the last Ring of Honor Pure Championship we- match we would have for 14 years. So okay. again, no wonder Marty Skrull was so interested. <laughs> it's never not funny. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. to use your real-life experience, uh, Lorcan, what is the Liverpool Olympia like as an arena? It's not an arena. It's a theatre. It's an old school music hall theatre. You get that at moments when the camera cuts. It's a strange space to have chosen. Mm. I wonder if it's because it's relatively cheap to rent out. And maybe Ring of Honor wanted a unique atmosphere. It was well seated. You had these three tiers. Though funnily enough, you know, the entire side of one of the platforms and where the hard cam is located there are literally no fans there there are some by the entrance ramp but the entrance itself is there's no one behind them i think because we've seen a more mainstream example in recent years of people like american companies leaning into traditional british aesthetics the uh, inaugural tournament to crown a nxt uk champion obviously at blackpool ballroom yeah so I, I, I think it's just another example of that. Of we're in England, let's use traditional aesthetics. Yes, but they maybe didn't use them as well as they could have because it is such a great looking place, old school, like really old school. You you know that people like Laurence Olivier or John Gielgud might have had a season there when they were in their 20s. Yeah. You know, playing Othello one month. Let's not talk about what they were doing with that. And then doing an Ibsen play after that, and then a bawdy farce the yeah. month after that, or the week after that. The importance of being earnest kind of thing. Yeah, the repertory companies that was what theatre was. I mean, I was just looking at... Oh, let's not go into that. <laughs> but it's this, it's this beautiful space that I feel like, especially since I think it was a very well-attended show, it must have been because they returned there a year later, and that was the show I went, that they didn't place the hard cam where all the crowd is so you could have seen them on three different tiers yeah getting into the show i suppose the other promotion that has a setup like that now is pro wrestling gorilla when they moved out of the armory or wherever it was the Reseda venue into that theater space or that music venue space that was really that's a as close as you got to a similar setup now. And the Olympia then also hosted at least one big event that was like a multi-promotional European Cup tournament thing. Because Alex Shane was the point man in the UK for booking these venues. So when I bought my tickets, I think I literally bought it from Alex Shane at the table. And for those of you that don't know, Alex Shane was probably the most prominent talent slash booker slash voice of the British wrestling scene and someone who tried to create a British scene and a man who had many different opinions held about him and his demeanour. I can only say he was nice to me the two times I spoke to him. And we'll leave it at that. But you were giving him money on at least one of those. On one of them I was giving him money, yes. (laughs) Yeah. 
But he was always someone with an interesting vision. Of course, then when he ended up being the co-commentator for World of Sport Wrestling, listen to the archives to see us lose our collective ability to function (laughs) over time with those episodes. (sighs) So he did eventually get his shot and... Well, I, I, I don't know how prominent he was in there. But whoever was in charge of that, British Wrestling had its shot and it blew it. Yeah. And this was really towards... The, this was after the peak of the British Wrestling scene. Because Ring of Honor had held a show in co-production with fr- the FWA, which was the big British Wrestling promotion of this initial explosion of indie wrestling post-WCW-ECW collapse, where Ring of Honor stuck out as the top in promotion in the US doing it and FWA is the top promotion in the UK doing it, so then they booked the Frontiers of Honor show in the UK, which was a series of matches between Ring of Honor and FWA. Okay. And FWA, I think, had pretty much stopped operating on a high level at this point. There was no single UK promotion that was pushing the UK scene this stage. So Ring of Honor being able to go in there was as high profile as the nerdy wrestling British crowd Got, I suppose. Oh, there was also, I guess, around this time, maybe 1PW was still operating and putting on some quite high-profile stuff in London. Uh, PCW, I think, was still doing things around this time, right? PCW might have existed, but they didn't really come into the forefront until the 2010s. Like, it was the North-West answer to what Progress were doing in London and what ICW were doing in Scotland. Right. And elsewhere. And obviously this is the northwest where we're at right now. I mean, if you want a sign of how the UK scene was doing at this point, Robbie Brookside was the big import talent that they used at this show. Obviously as a favour to Danielson, I would assume. <laughs> and hometown hero. Hometown hero, of course. That's, this isn't me denigrating Robbie Brookside. But it was a sign that there was no real up-and-coming British star that the Ring of Honour were really having a look at at that point. The next year was Puck. Puck was in that role. And I saw that happen where he had a match against Roderick Strong. And that was a real, okay, Puck, let's see what you can do. Maybe we'll book you regularly in yeah. the in Ring of Honor in the US. Which they never ended up doing. He was making a name for himself in PWG at the time. But he never got a full-time gig with Ring of Honor at that stage. WWE aside, his visa issues have, I think, really been a problem. I don't know if that would have been a case. Because I think this was also around the time that he was starting to get work in Dragon Gate. So maybe he was moving that way anyway. And then when Dragon Gate USA became a thing, he was also booked there, I think, as well. So, yeah, there's a lot. There was a fervor in that crowd. And again, I mean, it looks like the microphones that they used for this event were the ones that RevPro loaned for their recent <laughs> shows. Everyone's at 11 in their mic volumes, it seems, out of this show. But the crowd is at 11, even without the mics, I feel, especially towards the end. And it's most, well, this is the point now where Nigel McGuinness's cowardly heel is not there in the slightest. <clears throat> this is the first match of the new stage of Nigel McGuinness. And you can argue this is also the point, or at least this is the beginning of the point where Nigel McGuinness becomes the protagonist of Ring of Honor and the focus of Gabe Sapolsky's booking. Gabe Sapolsky's always said that he has, he likes to have like three focal points in his booking in Ring of Honor. Yeah. I think that was something he inherited from Paul Heyman. So if you look at ECW, usually it would be like Taz is one focus, getting him over, maybe getting Shane Douglas over and getting Public Enemy over or getting Just Incredible over. 
getting Raven over. Whoever it is that they're the focus going forward, that's where he makes sure, like, the first thing every show is what's going to happen to this person. And then gradually, as time goes on, you know, what's happening to BJ Whitmer is not as important to him at this stage. (laughs) Poor BJ Whitmer. What's happening to Matt Seidel is not a focus at this stage. It does at later points. And in the past, like, in the first while when he was pure champion, I never felt like Nigel was a focus for him going forward. But maybe almost accidentally, Nigel was getting over enough as a heel that he could try and do something interesting with him with Danielson. The first match was a success. The second match even more so. So now he's like, Nigel's proven he can do that main event match, go toe-to-toe with Danielson. And as Danielson says at the end of this match be the toughest challenge that Danielson's faced in the year that he's held the belt. And of course, they've also, in the build-up to it, show that both men are now about to enter a full year as champion. Or yeah. McGuinness won the pure title late August 2005 from Samoa Joe. And uh, now Danielson also won in September 2005 from James Gibson. So whoever wins this match is almost certainly going to go a full year as champion for their belt. Although, again, this is, you assume, with it being a unification match, and at the end of the match, where Danielson describes himself as the world pure champion. Yes. That this is also going to be the last match for the pure title. This isn't going to be a situation where they're holding both belts and defending both belts. There is only one champion going forward. And that had always really been the story of the pure championship. What was its value in comparison to the world title? And could you build it up? And Nigel has built it up now to the point where, partly through just how long he's held the belt, but also through the fact that as pure champion, he was able to get a win over the world champion that no one else has done. This is the biggest match of Danielson's run as the world champion as well, because he's also going to get to add another belt to his collection. And again, because Danielson had been the focal point of Gabe Polsky's booking and he made him look so strong. Before he was made world champion, Danielson was definitely someone that they could have booked to lose and it not hurt Danielson and it helped whoever he was booked to lose against. And he was booked to lose relatively frequently. Yeah, okay, okay. When they were saying at the start, the three focal points in the first show were Danielson, Loki, and Christopher Daniels. Danielson was the one that could take losses and be put down on the card and built back up over time. And as I said, they always booked him. He's the guy that beat Loki clean that no one else has been able to do so far. So he's always got that thing to his bow, even when he loses subsequent matches to Spanky or Paul London or Doug Williams or whoever. Gotcha. He's always got that in his back pocket. But then when he comes the... He's going to stick commit himself to Ring of Honor full-time as their champion. Not only does Gabe Spolsky book him to win all these big matches, be better than everyone, be booked to be the better wrestler in these matches as well for the most part, unless he has to use a small package or rely on a time limit draw as he does with Samoa Joe in the big match in between these two matches. The fight of the century as they were booking it, as they were promoting it at the time. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, so Danielson's come from that. So because he wasn't able to get a full, clean, decisive victory over Samoa Joe, he also, and he's going into this match, having lost to McGuinness once before under pure rules and not been able to get a decisive victory over him in their second match. Yeah, he's not stunned him enough to pin him properly. He rolled him up and used his technical ability, which is fine, but it's not clean enough for his ego and neither has he tapped him out either. Yeah, and I'll book, I'll talk more about this as it goes on, but how Sapolsky books how you win matches is important to him. He wa- If he wants it to be a decisive win, there's a reason to it. If he wants it to be a quick win, there's a reason to it. And we'll get more into that as this go- as the series goes on. 
So the stakes have never been higher. Them doing it in the UK makes it feel special. The Ring of Honor mat is a bit differently designed. It, it emphasizes the global aspect to it. Yep. The 2006 preset graphics <laughs> are as high profile as they can go with them, really. The best that their money can buy. Yes, because they didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best match I think ever wrestled under pure rules. I don't think there's anything even close to this. And I've said that, like, okay. I don't think they ever got the pure rules. They didn't use the pure rules as a medium within itself to tell a greater story. They made the story be about the gimmickiness of the rules. And so they made the rules feel like a novelty or a hindrance rather than an opportunity. Do you think it struggled being in the Ring of Honor promotion, the Pure Rule set? And maybe if it was in more of a sports entertainment style promotion, it would have held a significant amount of, of meaning. You're absolutely right. That's a really good point that the pure wrestling is almost redundant because Ring of Honor had always championed itself as a place about the pure wrestling as far as no ridiculous bells and whistles, no silly gimmicks, and treating wrestling seriously. And as you say, if it was like, you can kind of say that's where NXT are going with the Heritage Cup in a way, I suppose. Mm. That's almost like their cop to the UK scene, although again... I haven't watched a lot of Heritage Cup matches, and I think that there may be more about sneaking around the rules as well. I think it's an incubation for their relaunch of... that. He's not giving up on Europe. <laughs> but it's also a way of them providing something that looks different and is wrestled differently. But you're right. A lot of mat wrestling submission holds and forearms instead of closed fists and kicks instead of closed fists. Well, that was 80% of Ring of Honor's matches anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't stand out. What's cleverer, really, it should have been their equivalent to the X Division title, but with TNA, there was more of a clear delineation. You knew what an X Division match looked like compared to the main event scene with your Jeff Jarrett's and your... Ravens. Ravens and your Kevin Nash's. Obviously, AJ Styles was the guy that could flip back and forth between them, but other than that, they were really kept separate, but... Not separate, but equal, but that was the notion. (laughs) There was a time, especially when Samoa Joe was the X Division champion, that there was that sense of the X Division is an equal and it's really where what people come to TNA for more than, oh great, Jeff Jarrett's the champ again <laughs> in the main event scene. Uh, yes, you are You are right. It was the centerpiece. So weirdly, it's one of the we- rare aspects that TNA booked something better than Ring of Honor did at this time. Yeah. A bit of a hat on a hat. Yeah, you're right. That being said, looking at this match itself, you saying it's the best one that you think's fought under pure rules. My sample size is going to be lower than yours, obviously, because you, you were into this stuff as it was going out um, for a start. But I, from what I've seen, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I like the way that McGuinness's rope breaks like sort of fritter away first as the hometown, home country hero, I should say. And the crowd are like, oh, no, no. <laughs> We've all seen Tim Henman at Wimbledon. We know how this goes. <laughs> and then they give hope with Danielson having to use his rope breaks quite quickly. Well, the story of it is both times that Danielson overwhelms McGuinness and ultimately does out-wrestle him, I suppose, because Danielson is the best wrestler in the world. That is how he's being booked. And if you're the best wrestler in the world, you should be controlling most matches and out-wrestling guys. You should be out-pure wrestling, the pure champion, if you're as great as you are. And so 
with Danielson, he really is healing it up throughout the whole match. He's literally challenging fans to come into the ring and fight him. And he's having the time of his life doing it. And so he's such a prick. When he does the surfboard, that again, the, the recurring element throughout this one. In this one, he's not even going to do it as a little bit of skill or anything. Because it always plays up to the crowd. Like, whoa, whoa. So he's like, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of a payoff for that. Because <laughs> I know how much you British fans like going, way. So instead, he does the much more painful thing of just stomping on McGuinness's knees. Yeah. But the rope break situation, as you say, it's really clever because... Danielson twice gets the rope break advantage on McGuinness. I think at one point he's got like a two rope break advantage over McGuinness. He does. But both instances, that's where he gets at his most overconfident, his most cocky, and McGuinness makes his comeback and almost immediately forces Danielson to level up those rope breaks. So it's every time Danielson gives him a fraction of an opening, McGuinness is able to take advantage of it and put Danielson in as much trouble in a shorter space of time than Danielson had by just very slowly controlling the match. I love your point about the Tim Henman thing because I'm going to refer back to my favourite match of all time, which is Bret Hart against the British Bulldog at Wembley Stadium. And that similarly is wrestled in that if you look at the story of the match, Bret Hart is the better wrestler throughout this match in his controlling of the pace and the tempo and everything. Obviously, that's because we find out, maybe because David Boy Smith was out of his mind on crack. (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten everything. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) But it works almost in the way that you see the majority of football matches get booked, where it's a team, a Champions League team, against a mid-table team. To give you an example from our time of recording, quite recently, Manchester City played Manchester United. And there you see... This mid-table team in Man United, this Davy Boy Smith, this Nigel McGuinness, good, but, you know, just not at that quality of their opponents. Oh, there is an inordinate amount of glee going across <laughs> Lorcan's face right now. <laughs> Having the early flurry of control, because that's how they've got to hit them, but then just gradually the superior team, the superior club, just gradually controlling the pace and barely the, the the underdog, but the hometown hero, getting those brief glimpses of hope throughout the match. Now, obviously, this then doesn't end up being a 3-0 destruction of them. Instead, it's like a narrow 2-1, they lose on penalties situation with this one. Lost the fifth set in a tiebreaker. Yeah, yeah. Although, obviously, that couldn't happen in Wimbledon. Although, now I think it can when it reaches, like, 18-18 or something. You're never going to get yeah. that, that one. Yeah, isn't a hook can't happen again. Man. Yeah, we can't get that. Which, for the sake of the physical toll that that must take on people, I suppose that's a good idea. That was insane. I, I remember like seeing glimpses of that live. I was out and about somewhere, and it's being on the telly, and everyone going, oh, it's the tennis. Oh, what's that score? <laughs> <laughs> and just more people being drawn to it. What I love about that as well is that the score got so high that literally the IBM machine was not designed to go that high. Although it's not like it went to a billion or something. If a computer system in the year in the 21st century can't count up to not like 60, I do have to question how much they were paying for that computer system. Well, they were saving up for all the new courts they want to build, but that's by the by. But anyway, yeah, this match, I was wondering if this is going to be one where we talk for ages about it, but I kind of don't want to because its reputation precedes itself. I mean, I would assume if you were aware of anything with Danielson McGuinness, it was this match. Again, I have cited this in previous episodes. I remember reading the Power Slam breakdown of this match card 
and they used a they managed to get a really good picture of McGuinness uh, bloodied up. Yeah, which which simulated, which obviously conveyed to me, albeit for a still image, just how violent this was. And I saw referee stoppage. And from my perspective, as a pure WWE fan at the time, I had only seen referee stoppage, where are we, 2006, once at this point, And that was at SummerSlam 05 with that weird Edge Matt Hardy thing. Another famous example of that would be the Jerry Lawler, Kerry Von Erich Super Clash unification match. Yeah. Where Kerry Von Erich lost so much blood that he got a. There was a blood stoppage. And they also booked that for the Ric Flair Lex Luger match once. Didn't they do a Dusty Rhodes style, him getting screwed out? Because the special enforcer they had, who was a boxer, was like, no, you've lost too much blood. And then Dusty was like, this is proof that wrestlers are harder than boxers in the promo for his next match. That was how they booked it at Starcade. you're right, yes. I've seen that in one of the documentary series that WWE had on. I think they get it was the Rivalries one for Flair Rhodes. Try, good luck doing a rerun of the Rivalry for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but we're uh, we're talking about... The other famous thing about the Kerry Von Erich situation was that he had like a razor blade in his hand or, or his fingernail to use to cut himself and he cuts himself deep in that match but unfortunately he forgot about it scratched his arm before the match and so cut his arm really badly and Jerry Lawler just had to attack his arm immediately to make it look like he was the one that caused that cut (laughs) thing is with Jerry like in ring you know if you're gonna have that error with someone Jerry was the kind of guy who could like cover it we'll cover Jerry Lawler again in a future match of the week we've we've already we've done babyface Jerry Lawler with the Tommy Rich match or was it Austin Idol? It was one of the two. I think it was Idol. Uh, yeah, you're right. We'll do a heel Lawler match at some point in the future as well. But yeah, Danielson is such a great heel throughout this match and a proper, you know, taunting the home crowd. You know, Jamie Vardy could take some lessons from him the way that he behaves. <laughs> and also, another point you wanted to make when he gets the second rope break. So McGuinness has used two rope breaks to Danielson's none, that he has the two and obviously then uses it to flick the V's. Yeah. Uh, the crowd, and that was also Nigel McGuinness's taunt around that time when he was healing it up against the American crowd. Yeah, but he's used the second rope break, then immediately, because of Brian's overconfidence, the next move that gets hit is Nigel hitting the Tower of London. Which forces Danielson to use the rope break, and then they pay that off at a later stage, when I think Danielson's used up all his rope breaks, so he hits the Tower of London, and that was how he won the belt against Samoa Joe because Samoa Joe had used up his rope breaks but had instinctively put his foot on the rope instead of kicking out and that wasn't going to stop it at this point so that was a great close fall for this one the Danielson kicking out at the last minute which gets a genuine you can tell how protected that move was because the crowd are like what (laughs) you know what was interesting at the halfway point of watching this match I was wondering have I slightly overrated this match in my memory Mm. because at time of recording I'm compiling lists of top 40s as I'm turning 40. And when I was thinking of top 40 wrestling matches, this was a contender for it. Halfway through the match, I was thinking, I'm not sure if I feel that way anymore. Because I felt like McGuinness was maybe doing the fired up babyface act too much. Like there wasn't enough variety in what he was doing. Like from the start, he's looking at the crowd going, come on. It was like Danielson was holding up his side of the bargain with his healery. And that's not a word, but I'm going to use it. Whereas McGuinness, it was another one of those signs of just like, Danielson really is such a brilliant wrestler. And McGuinness is a very good wrestler. Mm. 
but is he at Danielson's level? And I still don't know necessarily, or or was he an upper elite wrestler, which is the perception of him after this match, essentially. This was the match that put him out to the upper echelons. And I'm watching it thinking, is that combination of just what Danielson's doing in this match and what McGuinness puts himself through in this match, hmm. rather than just simplistic storytelling ability, which he has in buckets, but he doesn't necessarily have at the level of Danielson and the level of the great wrestlers have. That remains to be seen. Then we'll see with later matches in this series where the role that McGuinness has fluctuates because this is the only time we have Dan- uh, McGuinness in their entire series as the hometown hero. Yeah. But this is also the first of several matches where he is the babyface of this match and so you're willing him to win. And the Danielson, not necessarily underhanded, but Danielson has to be at his best and his most brutal. He's underhanded insofar as when they fight on the outside, he does the Nigel McGuinness heel move of choking him with the table, getting into the ring to try and win the count out. A lovely payoff of the first match. Yes, but McGuinness, in fairness, was the one that brought the table into play in this match, and then Danielson was the one that used it. Yeah. But it was, but that was when it was, again, this match has descended, so they're going to the outside to start brawling. Once all the rope breaks have expired, yeah. Oh, and also, just to quickly follow up, the clever thing as well, that not only does McGuinness use the Tower of London to get the first rope break, but then the second rope break comes from him applying the cattle mutilation to Danielson. And you think if anyone should know how to counter the cattle mutilation, it's Danielson, but he instead has to rely on a rope break to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and just getting someone with their own move is the ultimate shit. It's timeless, isn't it? (laughs) But yeah, McGuinness just has that this is my night babyface intensity. And he obviously knows that if he's going to successfully defend his pure title, it's going to be winning the world title and doing something that no one else has done before. Considering it's fought under pure rules, it is the fact that rather than have to outsmart him like he did in the second match, he has to bludgeon him, literally bludgeon him almost, not to death, but like quite severely to stop him. He hasn't technically defeated Nigel McGuinness. He has definitively defeated Nigel McGuinness. No one can take that away from him. But, much like a recent match covered for the Five Star Series, he hasn't beaten him technically. He's had to bludgeon him to do it. And also, because McGuinness himself has gone to that place where there's really only one cop to his old technical wrestling gimmickry, and it's actually towards the very end of the match, where Danielson's got him ready for a dragon suplex. I think he'd hit him with a German suplex earlier. Yeah. So that's when he's got him in the full Nelson. And at this late... I always love it when in the late stage of the match they do something fundamental. I loved it. It was maybe my favourite spot on the whole night when in the Wrestle Dream match between Hangman Page and Swerve Strickland, the Swerve avoided a potentially match-ending buckshot lariat with a drop toehold. I loved that so much that at this late stage, in what is now a brutal battle, as you say, of them beating the shit out of each other. This is not pure wrestling in the sense of, oh, it's a good full Nelson you've got applied there. It's <laughs> I see you know your judo well. Yes, it's I'm going to smash my arm into your face if it kills me. <laughs> I just want you to stop breathing at this point. But at this point, it's been... Danielson's got him up for a dragon suplex, which is another key move in his arsenal, although I don't think it's a move that he usually wins matches with. But McGuinness is in a bad state, and what does McGuinness do to escape it? He doesn't even elbow him or power him out. He does the old Johnny Saint pulling his leg up so that he can get his hands underneath it, and mm. that combined forces is enough for him to break the full Nelson. It's how you break a full Nelson in the first minute of a World of Sport match, not how you break it in the 25th minute 
of a title unification Ring of Honor match where you're bleeding buckets. And just been choked with a table. And for most of the match, you've just basically been either trying to get your opponent into nasty submission holes or in the late stages, beat him to <laughs> beat him to unconsciousness. Yeah. And this is really where we're getting so many of the Nigel McGuinness lariat spots, the lariat on the top rope, the Trixie. I can't remember what, how it was called on Nigel McGuinness, but obviously it's the spot that John Moxley then took when he was Dean mm. Ambrose, where he's tangled up in the ropes. And Danielson knows it's coming, so he forearms him the first time, but he can't block it the second time. Yeah. Because it's just Nigel McGuinness has so much force into it. And it is one of those things. It's like when... um, It's like the Katsuyori Shibata Okada match where Katsuyori Shibata had so many counters to Okada's Rainmaker but ultimately in the final spot where you can see Katsuyori Shibata does have his arm ready to hit him but Okada's just again through his physical gifts able to power through and hit it and get that as you say I've not beaten him I've survived him finish yeah Danielson has survived McGuinness but that's because he out Fought him, ultimately. That is what happened. Mm. He got the advantage when they were both going for trying to pull each other into the ring post. And it was it was Danielson that won that test of strength. And that was really where it was all falling apart afterwards. And let's get into that. Because that is probably the most famous thing. And I was saying, maybe the reason why I wasn't sure if I wanted to give this a higher level is because... Is it because of its reliance on the blood? And McGinnis very clearly focusing his body to bust himself open. Hard way. And it's like taking yourself out of the reality of the match, where it is so clearly McGuinness is just looking at that and putting his head towards it. So it's just very clearly, it's not McGuinness being bludgeoned, it's McGuinness bludgeoning himself in the hopes of getting the hard way cut that then when he turns to the crowd and he's letting the cut form, you literally see one guy just looking at it and seeing the origin of the cut, I can assume, and just seeing him go, oh shit, (laughs) in the crowd he catches isn't that that guy at that point flipping the double birds straight into like Brian's face? As probably, well? probably. He was so angry, that guy. <laughs> well, that that was through Danielson's work as a piece of shit and McGuinness's work as the valiant hometown hero. <laughs> Oasis are better! <laughs> Just launches a telly at him. <laughs> but I guess when, the way that you tell the story with the blood there is that it's the sense that Nigel only has so much left in him. He's got so much time. Yeah, and Danielson knows this, so he knows that he's got this opening to snuff him out. And so even when, and then when they're engaging in the headbutt off, which is again horrible to look at, mm. it's Danielson's got that sense of like I should be able to win this ultimately, so I'm yeah. going to keep going. Just aim for the cup. Yeah, aim for the cup. <laughs> so this is obviously where in I mean in 2006, 2007, this was horrifying to look at, knowing even more what we know now, and the fact that McGuinness himself greatly regrets it and was making it a campaign effort of himself going forward when he retired from the in-ring stuff. It was basically the indie wrestling version of what Christopher Nowinski was doing. Yeah. Trying to get rid of chair shots and being upset when there were unprotected chair shots to the head in wrestling matches and being vocally critical of it and being vocally critical of uh, blood use, I think, as well. I can't mm. remember for certain, but... And obviously now that blood has come back and is so prominent now, because AEW have allowed it, and again, it's just one of those things of will WWE eventually start to allow it themselves? And I feel like Triple H wouldn't be against it. 
But it's it's more just the super corporation element to it. And also whether they want to continue to aim more at a family-friendly thing. Although the product is edgier than it was. So this is why Brock Lesnar, who's... When we were talking about the Ring Post Hardway, I was just thinking of... He's done it at least two WrestleManias of, okay, I'm not going to blade. I'm just going to smash my face into this metal pole. And then whatever I'll work with whatever comes out of that. Although I wouldn't also be surprised if Brock did a little bit of a cut as well to push it further forward. When you see McGuinness in the post-match promo, he was already cutting the mouth somewhere. There was So he was already bleeding going into that point. But it's that it's a vertical cut. And obviously when the wrestlers do those cuts to themselves, it's always like horizontal around the hairline. And also just a huge lump on his head. You know, it was getting John Merrick level, the way that his head was cut. <laughs> <laughs> At least on that part of the head. A Lester native, yes. Or um, uh, what was the, who's the Polish woman's MMA fighter? Oh, oh jo- Joanna. Jasidic or something? Jasidic, yeah. Think, yeah. But yeah, it was like, if it had gone much longer, or uh, or Lister in Red Dwarf when he gets the head mumps. Yeah. Oh my god, his head burst. <laughs> but it's like, if it's a storytelling function, it's not like a shortcut. I don't, it's definitely not a shortcut, because he literally did it the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also that, that, those 20 seconds, it is just not... Nigel trying to pretend he's in, not, or not very believably pretending he's in a wrestling match. Yeah. He's just very unbelievably hitting his own head against the ring post several times. Yeah. Maybe it's also because of the way that they put the camera. He's put, pointed right at his face, yeah. Yeah, maybe if they'd have instead done it from behind, so you're not seeing Nigel's eyes just looking at the ring post. But like, uh, Danielson's eyes just light up with more and more murderous glee instead. And so then Nigel turns around and then you see the blood. Yeah. Maybe that would have been the better way to... Shoot that. It then just leads to such an intense final stretch and near falls. And obviously, as we were saying, the previous two matches, they were still really, really good matches. Worthy of main eventing those shows and one of the shows it did main event. And what Danielson does so well is unknowingly realise the level of escalation it's going to. Mm. Before you know it, you're on your feet and you're fully absorbed in what have been relatively simplistic stuff to begin with. He, he slowly turns up the heat. Yeah, that Bret Hart, that Tanahashi, the Masawa ability of just gradually realising, oh shit, this is one of the best matches I've ever seen, or something. <laughs> like, half an hour's gone, like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, because you're just fully absorbed into it. And this is the blow-off. This is, we said in the first two matches, they were holding stuff back. Well, they're holding nothing back in this, and this is... One of those where it's like, you should really... I remember Alex Shane writing something about it. Like, if everyone's trying to have a five-star match, and I guess, again, it's my complaint with the Meltzer stuff we're doing. Mm. If there are these many five-star matches, then what does it mean? I think a wrestling promotion really should be striving to have a five-star match no more than two to three times a year, really. And actually, despite Ring of Honor's fame for having big, great matches, Gabe Sapolsky did level it out he was like okay let's make sure every show has a four-star match but these are the matches where it's vital for you to go the full length when it's Samoa Joe and CM Punk go in 60 minutes when you've got Kenta Kabashi coming in when it's the Briscoe brothers going having a ladder war or a big blow-off match with Steen and Generico and it's being put in the main events let's build the tape let's set the table for something let's not just try and have it for the sake of it yeah, so Ring of Honor 
had and Danielson's had all these great matches, but this is that level above. Like when you talk about this reign, and I've thought of in the past of us doing a podcast where we go through a championship reign, and Danielson's run with the Ring of Honor title would be one of those. And just as this is the one of two highlights, obviously in the run for this series of episodes. This is also designed to be because it's the moment where he not only wins against gets the decisive win over one of his greatest rivals, although they do have another match that gets proposed in the next afterwards. But it's clear that this is the final blow off of the world champion versus the pure champion, and it was the clear Yeah. Danielson full complete. At this point he was also being booked as the full impact pro wrestling champion, which was the sister promotion of Ring of Honor. That's how strong Danielson's been placed at this point. He beat the hometown hero. He unified the titles. They're doing the work that you have to do to justify saying our guy is the best wrestler in the world. Yeah. He slagged off the Beatles in Liverpool and got away with it as well. (laughs) And that's because even though he keeps the full heel attitude of it and he shit talks the fans, even he has to cop to the fact that McGuinness gave him his toughest match and offered him a title because, as I said, the Ring of Honor World Champion at this point would be booked as the Harley race, toughest guy in the bar, tweener, or Ric Flair, heel in Texas, facing North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, heel in Florida, he, you know, and so on and so forth. It, it, like, like we covered earlier, it, grant, it grants flexibility to them. And so Danielson, in this heel, like as close as his spectrum goes to being heel, still has enough self-pride and like he talks shit, but we can see he backs it up. Sometimes he gets a sneaky small package, but when when it's really called upon him, he delivers. Um, but yeah, it's just what I guess it is like. Maybe I think for a lot of people would argue, other than the Austin match, this might be the best. Like, can you think of any other high profile someone losing but come out out of it with so much more? Like after this match, you know that to fully tell the story of Nigel McGuinness, he has to win this world title at some point, and he has to get a decisive victory over Brian Danielson, maybe. I'm going to go a little bit hipster. Uh, I'm going to say the final of the Terry Invitational Tournament, the ladder match that the Hardys and the um, Edge and Christian had. I would counter that by saying that the difference with that is that it wasn't like the Hardys were at a level above Edge and Christian at that point. If anything, the Hardys were probably perceived as a level below Edge and Christian. Mm. Whereas with the Bret Hart one and with this one, Bret Hart was a main eventer in Stone Cold wasn't yet at that point. Yeah. Danielson wasn't a main eventer. Nigel McGuinness was, wasn't at that point. Hmm. He wa- Neither man were being presented on that level. McGuinness was literally the secondary championship holder. Okay, um, Gable recently against Gunter. Yes, that's um, a good... Yeah, the, that's... I think that's the, the last vestige of any stink of Shorty G being washed off of him. <laughs> yes, but I can also see Gable, that almost being his peak, that I wouldn't say that Gable was guaranteed. Like, everyone would want him to win the title, but I don't think there was a sense of an inevitability of that. Because Danielson had a series of matches with guys throughout this run, and he would ultimately come out on top. Like, he had a three-match series with Roderick Strong, and the final win was a decisive victory, so it was a sign of Roderick Strong is amazing, he's not there yet. And there wasn't a sense of Roderick Strong becoming a world ty- world champion wasn't necessarily as inevitable as it feels like with this one, I think. But you obviously haven't seen those to refer it back to it. But yeah, um, I think I will go. It's five stars, but it's the closest to four and three quarter stars as I can go without it being four and three quarter stars. Though unlike... Meltzer, if I'm debating my, that with myself, I can go five stars. <laughs> Just because it's so important. Yeah. But I can also believe that the other match that is ranked above it 
from my memory of watching that match, that that is also a believable, better match. Yeah. And I look forward to us talking about that match when we get there. Yeah, I, I think I will go five for this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it, you, as listeners will know, I love the ends of stories. <laughs> and this was the end of a, a particular story told really, really well. Well, will the next match be the epilogue of that story? Because as we say, it's only it's actually only a couple of weeks later that we have this return match. But Simon, what is the show? What is the date? And what is the stipulation to this match? So when we are looking at the 25th of August, so not long at all for the rematch clause to get exercised, at an event called Epic Encounter 2, sadly not with the subtitle Electric Boogaloo, but we move... Um, The stipulation for this one, we're going a little bit different, but something which is classically used in um, wrestling rivalries when they want something even more definitive than a definitive win. A two out of three falls match. And and we are at St. Paul's Armory in the city of, well, city or town of St. Paul in Minnesota. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with other suggestions for how you film someone basically cutting themselves on live TV. How can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter. I am so known as Simon Cross Free, and people will have predicted correctly, because I am this lazy, free because it's the third match in the series. My name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, which are the third and fourth from last words in external ocular protuberance. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. And I hope you will stay with us as we continue to rerun the ride. Yes, there is no one to